Hi, welcome to Literally, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Mock. And I'm Paige Wallace. And we're back. Still sounds so practiced with that, even though. <laughs> Anytime I say my name now, I say it as if I'm introducing this podcast. And I, when I listen to other podcasts, I realize that they've recorded their intro, but I like saying it. With I you. know. I've thought about that many times where I'm like, huh, we could probably just take our intro. But we've got it like the recording of our intro and put it on, but we've got it down to a science now that, yeah, I don't know. And I, I honestly wouldn't know how to start without it, but now we're starting season three. I know. Still doing it. <laughs> yeah. How do we feel about season three, Margaret? I am so excited. I'm really, really excited for the episodes we have in store for everyone. We have the whole season mapped out and I think it's going to be good. Yeah, I think it's going to be really good. I'm excited too. I've missed recording. Like we took a a break and Mm -hmm. I'm like really excited to get back at it. But I also feel like weirdly nervous about it right now. (laughs) First day of school jitters. (laughs) Yeah, it is. I'm like, have I forgotten how to do this? (laughs) I was telling someone not too long ago about how every semester I get those first day jitters where I'm like, I'm not actually scared it's just that anticipation of like the whole newness of it all that it's like a brand new journal or something writing on the first page and being like ah yeah oh I like that writing on the first page we're writing on the first page and we are writing on the first page with our least favorite text how do we teach them yeah and we're gonna try not to be like too ranty (laughs) I'm me I'm gonna try not to be too ranty but I'm excited to talk about this topic. Yeah, like, and to, cl- uh, to clarify, these are not necessarily our least favorite texts to teach. They are our own personal least favorite mm-hmm. novels. Yes. And also, I think it's important to clarify that, like, we're going to have some fun with this. But the practicality it portion is that at some point, depending on the structure, um, you might teach it text that you don't really like mm-hmm. um that that needs to be covered or that's required of your department especially if you're a grad student right um and you maybe don't have as much control over what you know like what text you're using um then maybe you can get some practical tips for how to move beyond how you feel about the text to using it productively yeah, because ideally, you are not just teaching what your favorite books are to your mm-hmm. students. It's not a catalog of your personal preferences. Ideally, um, unfortunately, <laughs> lots of words to interchange there. Signing up for Paige Wallace's um, canon, just a course like uh, English 3004. Paige Wallace's introduction to the canon. <laughs> it's just your favorites. Or students. <laughs> also, that would reveal way too much about, like, me as a person couldn't do it. That's why I'm not teaching only my favorite books. <laughs> it's like your Netflix algorithm being exposed, and you're uh, like, ah! Don't you, like, do you ever use Netflix in class, like, for clips and things? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like, when you're pulling it up, you're like, oh, God, they're going to see my most recent watch. Like, they don't need to see this. Yeah, I blank the screen and, and Can you, have... yeah, mute it to the last moment. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So what our least favorite text are we discussing, Paige? So I'm going to talk about Cormac McCarthy's Child of God. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be talking about William Styron's Sophie's Choice. And we might as well prep them that we're going to spend a solid amount of time talking about uh, mm, when men write about women. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we started touching on this already, why you might have to teach your least favorite text, but let's sort of probe this a little bit more. Um, I'm thinking generally and specifically to the two novels we're bringing up, like why would we need to teach them? And generally speaking, thinking of what we talked about department requirements um, is going to be a big one, but also thinking about the course itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, like Paige, not that you've taught this specific novel in the past, but have you had to teach novels 
you did not like in the past? I mean, I've taught novels that weren't my favorite and especially like an intro to literature when I first started teaching it, you're still figuring out like, you know, like your identity as a teacher and like what your goals are and stuff like that. And there can be this pressure of like, this is how it's been taught. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are the books that I'm going to use. Right. And so I have done some Hemingway that I don't dislike that I didn't love in a class, but felt like that pressure of like, okay, I'm teaching an intro to lit. Uh, with focus on American literature, I need Hemingway in here. Um, And I think that now that I've grown um, as a teacher, I feel less of that pressure. Like I I feel more instead like that there's not a standard that I need to follow that instead there's like a, what's the mission of my particular class? What are the objectives or the goals of my class and how do I meet them? And sometimes that means teaching something that I feel like is important to the scope that we're looking at, but isn't necessarily like a text that I love reading or love teaching. Does that make sense, Margaret? Yeah, no. And I think that brings up a good point. Like when you're teaching a novel or work that you don't personally love, you have to ask yourself that question. Well, why am I teaching it? Is it just because like what you were saying, it's expected, it's traditional. And those reasons are often not sufficient, but if it's fits within the context of your course and the goals, then yeah, that might be justified. Like thinking too about legacy. Like I think there's a difference between teaching a novel you don't like because it's usually taught and, and grappling with that legacy and teaching a novel you don't personally love because it has so much influence, um, over subsequent works that you're covering in class that they're all part of that same conversation and so grappling with that specific legacy um, of a particularly particular thread of conversation versus just like well people seem to think this is important so I guess I should consider it important Um, right and so I guess that gets into it like where we would be teaching these novels because they fulfill some specific goal or objective they fulfill Mm -hmm. a purpose that another novel might not be able to fulfill as well yeah yeah and so for me specifically for child of god thinking about what kind of class i would teach it in would be something focused on like southern environments and in a unit that looks at like violence in southern environments um, or Southern environmental spaces and specifically violence against women and sort of pushback. There's this essay by a scholar, Rachel Stein, who talks about like this idea of retreating into nature, but like women can't just retreat into nature because like they might be raped and murdered in nature. And so child of God would be a good, terrible, good, terrible lens to look at that with. Yeah. Have you ever looked I see it more often in the context of like um, scholarship on Irish works or like post-colonial works where it's like woman as symbol of land. Mm -hmm. So like, um, like the lonely woman um, and all of that and thinking about like to determine who has power over the land is worked through with representations of women, like, and just thinking about all of that tied in together. Yeah. So, um, scholar who wrote kind of specifically about that in in American is uh, Annette. uh, And I never, I feel like I can't say her last name, right? It's like K-O-L-O-D-N-Y. It's one of those moments of like where we only ever read names. Exactly. So it's like Annette K-O-L-O-D-N-Y. Anyway, so (laughs) she's American, like feminist eco person Mm. who writes about that idea of like women as landscape, right. Or representing Mm -hmm. or symbolizing and like either the virgin to be tamed or the maternal, um, to be protected. And so like how both of those fears manifest in literature and interestingly, McCarthy has a lot of texts that also deal with the West and, and images of nature. And so I think he could be interesting 
in this conversation um, mm-hmm. of like what women symbolize. Could you see teaching this text in any other courses or is it primarily that like Southern landscapes, Southern violence it, with landscapes and Yeah, I would absolutely teach this class uh, thinking about like Southern environments and violence. I really can't think of like another context. I mean, obviously, I think it could be a class where you talk about horror, um, Mm. even though it's like not traditionally horror. It has these sort of like horrific elements. And then, you know, if you did a class on there's a sort of morbid curiosity when it comes to like true crime and Mm the fiction that has come out of true crime. And so we're talking about how the the character is based on an infamous serial killer that American Psycho pulls from, that um, a lot of other texts pull from. But uh, I don't know that I would want to teach that particular class, Mm -hmm. but I could see it happening in a class like that. So tell us about Sophie's Choice. What like what kind of class would you teach this novel in? So when I was thinking about it, I realized there was quite a number that okay. I could potentially. Now I don't know if I would. I'd really have to sit down and grapple with like what are the most important texts for these courses and their parameters. But I think it could potentially be useful in a course on motherhood. Mm-hmm. In the past, when I've taught courses on motherhood, I tend to use female authors but it might be useful to talk about like male explorations of this and how they are similar different I think it could also be useful for thinking about the ways maternal what purpose maternal suffering plays in certain narratives particularly how we use maternal suffering as a form of refinement for other characters. They better understand the world through that mother's pain, or they learn to be better people after seeing a suffering mother, but it rarely ever benefits the woman herself. I think it could be a text that would be incredibly useful in a class on muses, which is a class I've been thinking about a lot. Texts that grapple with woman as muse versus woman as artist you know just you could call the course Anka Jams but thinking with this like Sophie is a musician and the narrator uh, Stingo is a writer and so you have that tension there about who gets to tell her story what does she inspire how does that inspiration work and she's very much the conduit for his success she doesn't have artistic success through her pain. He does. And then I think the other course I'd be interested in including this with is actually American slavery because the narrator is a white Southern man whose family owned slaves in the past. They're grappling with that legacy. And there's very much a conflation between in the novel between American slavery and the German Holocaust Uh, and or Poland's role in the German Holocaust and I think there's something important with that with what the novel's maybe unintentionally doing of one of the ways as a culture we confront slavery is by deflecting it in in some ways yeah so just thinking about that what's going on with that which would also allow that's one of the biggest controversies of the novel is that he's writing a novel about the Holocaust that features focuses primarily on a Catholic woman and very much like tries to universalize that suffering where it's not necessarily a anti-Semitic thing or a race thing. It's a human thing. And I understand that compulsion, but I think it's worth interrogating. Like how do we talk about cultural traumas and how do we talk about cultural evil? And, and I think this would be one of the nuances you have to discuss with that. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting because also like, not only how do we talk about cultural traumas because we want to identify it as like a human thing, they've been sort of appropriated in ways like either deliberately. And so I was thinking about when you were saying that the Netflix documentary um, about the woman who tells the story that she's like a lost child of the Holocaust, Misha and the Wolves, and inspired like in the early 90s, like 
um, this huge following that she had been like placed with a Catholic family during in Brussels during the Holocaust. And then that she had left to search for her birth parents and like walked with in the woods for years and basically like joined a wolf pack. Right. And so there's this documentary that looks at like unraveling that story and the fact that she maybe wasn't telling the truth. And, but then I'm also reading Louise Edrick's The, the Sentence, her new, one of her newest novels. And I'm going somewhere, but she has a character, Flora, who dies and she's Native American. The the main character is Native American and she's working in a bookstore. And Flora is a white woman who constantly sort of like comes in and, and is like obsessed with like Native American culture and traumas, but then kind of tries to like really associate herself with those traumas. And we don't know if it's true. Like, does she have a great grandmother that was Native American or not? And so I was just thinking about like how interesting that thread is and how it could connect to other texts. Um, and this idea of while we might understand the compulsion or the desire to make it like a human thing, the necessity for naming like a cultural trauma and walking it with like the people who actually experienced it without sort of like taking space yeah and like not to dismiss that obviously the holocaust did yeah absolutely it is just like it's going beyond in this novel just like centering a catholic woman like it's centering a southern man man in in the narrative of the holocaust but yeah that we I I keep thinking about my friend who she taught middle school and high school. And when she taught them the color purple, um, one of her students said, oh, I can really relate to the characters in this. And she said, that's not the purpose of this. That when you read, the goal isn't always to see yourself. The goal is to see representations of people of the world. And, And those people often have very different experiences that you might not be able to relate to because you have not had those experiences. And like the value of a book isn't how much you can relate to it, but more like how much you can understand that difference between relating to yeah. and understanding. And also just centering yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that like you can be impacted by this without feeling the need to like center yourself and your experiences. So, you know, like the influencer on TikTok who has the video about if she were Vladimir Putin's wife or mother, right? Um Which, real life example. Because I'm about to go down a rabbit hole. Okay. But watching that and thinking that she does not understand she's perpetuating the narrative that all violence is the fault of bad mothers. That if Putin had simply had a good mom, we wouldn't be having these atrocities. <laughs> That the role of the mother in violence is just fascinating to me. And I think to connect it back to what we were talking about. Yeah, I don't think this is a tangent because I think this is a real thing that um, is interesting and interesting to trace through literature and other media because it keeps coming up with in terms of like some of the things we've been talking about. But also, you know, I just listened to the man. Alec Murdoch and Mandy Matney episode of the Murdoch podcast and the Maggie Murdoch um, Mm -hmm. episode. And I didn't, I didn't finish it because I do the same sort of thing. There is happening that, Oh, bad kid, bad mother. Mm -hmm. Um, Mom is responsible for this kid and who they grew up to be. Yeah. The narratives of mothers holding the responsibility for violence and ending violence in the world are, are, is so embedded into our cultural narratives that I think unless you are intentionally interrogating it, you won't even see it. It's just so normalized of like, whenever we see in the real world instances of violence, especially with kids that you say like, well, where's the mom? Where's that person's mom? What kind of, and it's like, is that the sole responsibility? And I think um, Sophie's Choice does, I don't know how intentional some of the interesting work it does with it, but it, it is centering a mother at the heart of, of violence and kind of what do we do with that? Yeah. And I think that would be so interesting, like in a class on motherhood, not just with Sophie's choice, but like we said, just so many examples mm-hmm. of that, like that mentality and like 
how that's part of like the maternal suffering or, um, yeah. Yeah. So thinking about course objectives, I don't know if we have any specific in mind and I don't know if we want to talk about like, I guess we've been talking about what content role these, this novel would play, but are there any sort of like technical components or like assignments you were imagining with it that gets into the nitty gritty of like what purpose this novel would be serving beyond just the themes? I think that, and I don't know that, like, I don't have this assignment fleshed out, but I'd like Mm -hmm. to do, like, I imagine teaching passages of Child of God. I don't know that I would sign the whole text Mm -hmm. um, as a way, as some sort of like compare and contrast, like, what are the varying degrees of how we represent violence in both like text and popular culture or like novels and popular culture, but how do we represent or how do we avoid women's bodies as props for that violence? And what are the, like the examples that achieve a version of this in which these women don't become like these empty vessels for violence. And then what are the examples of, or what's the problem with examples in which the women aren't, I mean, in this, in this example, they're dead. Right. Um, And they're very much just lifeless vessels, but there are a lot of ethical like considerations, I think, where we can take readings of McCarthy's Child of God and apply it to how we tell true crime stories mm-hmm. um, and how how we make ethical decisions about um, like scenes of violence against women in, uh, I don't know, like Game of Thrones or, or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Like how do we, where are the lines, right? How do we it's not that I'm saying that we screen or like that we edit these things out entirely, but how do we do a better job? And I think you're bringing up something like, it's like literally, how do we do it? Cause I think it comes down to a technical question. Mm-hmm. Like, cause you brought up Game of Thrones and I think about how in season one, it's all sex position that we're going to get the audience's attention by showing women's bodies in the background, showing women's bodies being degraded in various ways. And that's going to be salacious. It's going to be attention grabbing. And then we'll hook them in that way and slowly wean them off of it. But then later, and spoiler alert for people who, you know, are waiting to watch Game of Thrones, Cersei's walk of shame uh, through the city. Um, the, the, I think it was the directors talked about how they intentionally extended that scene like wouldn't break from it because they knew that at the start of the walk the audience at home would feel triumphant oh she's now getting her just do her just desserts she's getting what she deserves and they wanted to hold it long enough that you start to feel uncomfortable that you can't just relish in it that you start to be like okay this is a little bit too much maybe no one deserves this and I know for well, I was uncomfortable from the start because I don't like <laughs> seeing that sort of stuff. But I think it was maybe effective that like sort of understanding of timing um, and and confront and, and confronting the audience with what violence means. That if the scene had been shorter, people would have just been like, yeah, great. Um, in novels, I think about how violence against anyone is makes the reader complicit because you have to imagine it. So you're creating the violence in your head. Mm-hmm. So what techniques do authors use to make it that you're not enjoying that creation? Yeah. Um, you feel guilty or uncomfortable. Guilty, yeah. But still keep reading that you're not just right. like, oh, I can't handle this. I'm out. And I don't, the only novel I can think of off the top of my head that I think does it really well is um, Rosemary's Baby. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it's the uncertainty in that novel. You're not sure if the violence is happening or not. And so, and the character's not sure if it's happening or not. And so you're grappling not only like with whether or not the violence is happening, but what it would mean, like what sort of violation is taking place. So you're always aware that this is a violation, 
but it, you're not as complicit in, in the perpetuation of the violation. Yeah, I also think that like there's a different layer, to, like violence against women and how it's portrayed when there's a path for something else. And when, and, and you mean in terms of like the woman's own agency? Yeah, or, and, and the world that's being created, right? Mm-hmm. So even if we have a woman who is murdered in a text or a film or like a novel or a film, um, is something different happening when it's just that over and over again? Um, and there's no, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say here. I but guess you're making me think like maybe partnering this novel with Beloved um, in terms of Southern Landscapes. But I, I don't know if I would partner it. I'm just thinking about it in general and like how the degradation of the body but you are like it that novel makes you uncomfortable with it you don't like those scenes and and I'm just thinking about the the tree um that's I guess why I'm I'm connecting it in my head yeah and and it's it's from the perspective of like beloved is is we are getting the perspective of the women Mm -hmm. right um and we I think something about this novel is perspective here that do we need another version of this perspective, right? Cause I mean, our character like ends up in jail right at the end and sort of like this decrepit demise. So I'm not saying like he's a hero in any way, but do we like, what does this offer? I think is my question. And I know that's kind of a, that's a loaded question and maybe an unfair question on some level but yeah that's the question I'm interested in I think in terms of like do we need another perspective on a man that kills women Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's a that's a harsh question well I think there's something there about like repetition versus repetition with variation like repetition with variation at least allows different nuances, understandings, like you, you're, you start to fill in the holes, but just like, and I, and that doesn't give an answer to you, but just thinking about like, what is it doing differently from other portrayals of this? Yeah. And I think I just don't have a very generous reading, <laughs> you know, like, I think that there are things happening, um, that are masterful and interesting. I just don't know that the cost of like these like lifeless body, like literal lifeless Mm -hmm. bodies of women and children, like, you know, underage women, children is worth whatever new angle we're getting here. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's this idea that, you know, grappling with like, okay, like this man too is a child of God, like, and the dark humor of all of that. And also thinking about like, are they just showing this as individual depravity or is this an interrogation of something larger? Because I think maybe that's what I'm thinking. Like I am more open to, to novels that feature violence when it's interrogating something that's not just people sometimes do bad things. Sometimes people, individual people are evil. Like, yes, we know that we know that like there's aberrations, but like, if I'm going to peer into the abyss, I need to know that the abyss stares back. (laughs) And I think the abyss here is the, you know, like a little bit of the stigma of like the backwards Appalachian sort of grotesque. Mm-hmm. And I don't love that either. So again, I have no generous. Yeah. So I'm no generous um, that like poverty and, and this connects to with like poverty and bad mothers don't always equate to like terrible, evil human beings. And mm-hmm. I, and that doesn't feel like a very good reason. I don't know. I'm not being generous at all today, but I think we're, maybe doing similar things in our course objectives, because what I'd be interested in with Sophie's choice is perspective and language and thinking about the ways um, perspective and language objectify characters that are meant to be round characters. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that that's kind of a basic thing, but I'd want to do close reading passages to talk kind of about that benign objectification because he puts Sophie on a pedestal 
she's idealized. Mm -hmm. She's referred to as a goddess and how, even though he's not saying anything derogatory, he's not saying anything cruel. These are all dehumanizing her. Um, They're all turning her into a symbol. And I think that's where I think it would be really useful for a class on women as muses, women as artists, Mm -hmm. that he doesn't see her as an artist. He sees her as a muse. And how does this happen? What is the language he's using that puts her in this role? How does his perspective um, overshadow hers or or gets projected onto her? Um, And looking again at the techniques so that it's not just, oh yes, this happens in literature. Oh yes, this happens culturally, but how does it happen? How do we call it out when it happens? How do we avoid it in our own writings? Or how do we unpack it and its influence on us as readers, as audience members? Um, Because I was telling you about this before, the (laughs) climax of the novel is him just like talking about her nipples. Like it's, he's found out her horrible, horrible secret. He's heard her whole story with the Holocaust. And then he's just has sex with her. And it's like in this over the top language, like. Also, it feels so like, so I know you said we weren't going to read the passage and I'm totally fine with that, but it feels so like disjointed, like, you know, like Mm -hmm. these like disconnected body parts. Yes. Um, and, And I think that goes back to like, she's a prop um in so many ways and it's purely physical pleasure like because we've talked in previous episodes with uh price of salt about a sex scene that's very erotic but it's not dehumanized it's erotic and sensual but it's also emphasizing the connection between these characters i think he's trying to emphasize the connection here but it's pure physical pleasure At one point, he talks about thrusting into the cleft between those smooth white globes. I suddenly clenched my eyes shut, and I remember, thought in a weird seizure of cognition of the necessity of redefining joy, fulfillment, ecstasy, even God. It's like, so you're not having sex with a person. You're having sex with ecstasy. You're having sex with God. You are a fantasy yes it's, it's it's like the it's like the blow-up doll right mm-hmm. it's it's a fantasy she's the embodiment of all of his hopes and dreams and that includes artistic dreams mm-hmm. and it's that language is throughout it and so I'm with you I don't know if I'd have my students read the entire novel I lean towards yes because I want them to see that journey where even after learning her entire story which he's going to take and use this is still how he's describing her and talking about her um she is not the owner of her own story in this novel um she is simply like you were saying the vessel that brings him the story and he it's very much in that that tradition of um woman is oracle and man is priest where she has all of the material, she has all of the energy that, uh, um, but he's the rational one who has to interpret it yeah. and has to translate it. And it's, she's just that the message, but he's the messenger. Yeah. And I think you said something there also about like ownership, right? So like if, and this plays into perspective, um, but if there's violence, but also like ownership and perspective, beyond that Mm -hmm. like or beyond like the fantasy right so like then it's the purpose is different yeah yeah it's all kind of wrapped up right like ownership of land ownership of body ownership of narrative and who gets that yeah and so I think this leads to a really good question then of of like what kind of trigger warnings we would give for these novels Mm. Um, I think I'd be letting my students know for Sophie's choice that obviously it's a novel about the Holocaust, that we're going to be seeing representations of the Holocaust and, and what that entails, but also letting, letting them know 
that it's not maybe the depictions we want because I think there's something with that frustration and 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 um for people for students who have felt silenced in the past to see the potential of representation where once again there's a silencing and an erasure that can be really upsetting and be difficult to work through in class um and to let them know like ahead of time like hey if you're frustrated with this novel me too (laughs) and that's something like I tell my students like in all the classes I teach for the most part that um a productive novel is not necessarily a novel we like. I'm like, I can't normally teach novels that I love because I'm just like, don't you guys love this? Isn't this great? And I don't necessarily have anything particularly productive to say, but um, novels that are frustrating, whether it's understanding what they're trying to, to do, like Ulysses or like Sophie's Choice, frustrating because it's like, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. But there's something to unpack and you can get into um, the artistry and the technique of a novel to see what works and why, what doesn't work and why. And that can be really productive and like kind of encourage them lean into your frustration. It's okay to be frustrated with this. It's okay to talk about that frustration in class because that's going to give us points of the novel where that we can really interrogate and turn that frustration into something useful and hopefully less frustrating. Also, so I think as you were saying that, this is one of the reasons why we teach uh, our least favorite text, right? Because so often students are really set to read with the grain um, and to kind of accept. And so if we have a novel that we are frustrated with and we can share that productively with students, then we can encourage them that, hey, like the things you're reading aren't, set in stone they're not law like you know you don't have to accept what the author is telling you You, your job is to question um, at least some aspect of it and so that could be interesting or as like a starter for a class right like let me tell you why you have to read against the grain because here's an excerpt from this text that I find really frustrating for these reasons let me show it to you that could act as the trigger warning as well, right? Mm-hmm. And now you, can you see this, right? So also, can you make that part of your task moving forward, right? What are the things that don't work for you in this novel, right? Where are the places that you disagree with the text that you want to read against the grain? And, and like looking at what the author is doing on purpose, but also not on purpose. Yeah. Like what's the blind spots? What's seeping in like, tear it apart. Yeah. I like that idea. I feel like I'd be much more compelled to use this um, <laughs> in that kind of situation. So I actually did do that in the, with my women in lit class for motherhood that we started with Charlotte Perkins Gilman's Herland, which I don't love. Mm-hmm. I, honestly, I kind of find it a boring novel to begin with, but That's also fair. problematic. <laughs> <laughs> like, But we start with it because I think it sets the groundwork for a lot of the ways motherhood was considered in the 20th century as like this public good. Uh, How do we stop violence? How do we um, create better violence? Moms, we use moms. And so my students would read it and honestly, they'd get really excited by it because they'd be like, look at this feminist utopia. And then at the end, we'd wrap up with um, uh, uh, articles about Charlotte Perkins Gilman's um, racism and how like and talking about who gets to be in her land it's white women it's able women there's no queer women there's and like how it regulates who gets to be a mother within that and like all of that and then they start being like oh oh and they go back and they unpack and they keep going back to that novel but it sets it up that like don't just accept what the authors are telling you about these ideas um don't just accept that with the grain reading like we need to be interrogating these ideas and the way they're being constructed for us um so it's a little bit of a bait and switch on on my part Mm -hmm. but but also you you it's interesting 
because, you know, Charlotte Perkins Gilman in the yellow wallpaper are like is a text that is used heavily in standardized tests um, for high school students. So I think that's interesting because like in those situations, they're taught very much to read with the grain, right, yeah. um, of that text. And so that bait and switch has to be really productive because a lot of them are familiar with her as an author, just in a different And text. a feminist author. Yeah. So they come mm-hmm. in excited, like, oh, we're reading the feminist author that I learned about in high school. Mm-hmm. It's like feminism has blind spots. Mm-hmm. Feminism yeah. has not included everyone. Like, and, and we need to be mindful of that just because you can see yourself in this feminist utopia does not mean it's a utopia. And we, and we play with that idea of uh, utopia throughout the, the course of like mm-hmm. one person's utopia is another person's dystopia. Like, yeah. but, um, but yeah, thinking about maybe it's not your least favorite text you start your semester with, but like a non-favorite, <laughs> like in. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. I like that's, that's really good. It also, I think, shows students, like, you don't have to enjoy reading a, a novel or work to enjoy unpacking it. Yeah, which is so important, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that's so hard to translate to them. Yeah, because it gets into those larger questions of, like, what novels get included and excluded, and, and how do we evaluate merit and it's it's like well problematic novels might still need to be included because it teaches us how to engage with bad ideas Mm -hmm. and unpack them and explain why this isn't ideal but also we see how bad ideas influence good ideas or are part of these conversations and so let's talk about this final question and then Mm -hmm. do our dream courses but would you tell be upfront with your students about your opinions on the novel? Yeah, mostly because um, I've seen in the past that, again, my students expect to love all the novels we read or, or that that's the point of a novel and that you're supposed to read novels that are pleasurable. And I just like to model that for them. And I tell them most of the stuff I write about is not what I love. Mm-hmm. because well, you don't care about whether or not I love it. I don't care whether or not you love it. Like that's not, I'm, I'm glad if you love it. I'm glad if we love the same things, I'm okay if we don't, but why should you care about my thoughts on the novel? It has to be grounded in, in that. So what? Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of move, moving them towards the like personal preference to the, so what of it? Like, I don't know if I'm using too much shorthand with that. No, I don't know. What about you? Um, I think I'm the flip side of that is that mm-hmm. I would come off too strong uh, <laughs> and they would defer to me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would try to tone it down and I would, I think I would gear all my questions to be more, to be clear that I'm leaning towards how I don't like the novel. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think I would be upfront with that them, at least not at the beginning. It would be something that I wait on like till after we finish reading whatever we're reading from it or to kind of avoid them just ri- like writing it off. Like, okay. We all hate this like it. We all just hate it. There's nothing we can glean from it. And mm-hmm. I think I would be the source of that. And so yeah. I would <laughs> Be try to be really conscious about that while teaching it because that wouldn't be my goal for them to just be like this is a terrible book. You know what though, I, and I'm now just thinking through everything we've been talking about. Maybe in the future, I structure my class and tell them about it at the top around Philip Sidney's idea that um, poetry is a medicine of cherries, <laughs> that it's meant to pleasure or be pleasurable why while edifying, improving you, and interrogate that idea like it wouldn't be a theory class because it wouldn't be in-depth enough but like start the class with the idea that effective literature is supposed to improve you while you enjoy it Uh uh-huh and do we buy that and how do we how do you evaluate that balance how do you determine 
what is enjoyable and what is edifying. Um, and I don't know how that would work long-term, but I'm just thinking like how, that that could be a, a useful way to structure a class to move beyond just the opinions. Cause I do think that's something with students that students struggle with that they want to, they conflate analysis with personal opinion. I didn't like the characterization. I didn't like this. I, or I did like this and to help them move beyond that. I also had a theory professor who regularly quoted Philip Sidney. So he's forever imprinted on my brain. I mean, I like that idea um, of starting and of starting with that question. Yeah. And, and developing their own analysis, like um, evaluation for literature that that's what Philip Sidney says. But by the end of the semester, what do you think is effective literature? How would you create your own canon? Like, or what have Such you? solid reflective questions. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. Yes. That, and that kind of brings you yeah, up. So like starting there and then ending there would be really interesting. And you'd have to do mid semester, right? Like checking in on the cherries in mid-semester <laughs> checking in on the cherries yeah <laughs> I'm just imagining like the if you were doing this in high that. school you could have some great visuals on your bullet that's what board. I was thinking the handouts for <laughs> <laughs> what are the cherries <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Ellen, um Okay, Paige. So how are your cherries? What are, what's your going to be your dream course? Okay. So I've been watching Love is Blind. I know that you just started it. Um, No -hmm. spoilers. I'm only on like episode eight and I've been thinking a lot about like toxic masculinity, but also toxic femininity um, Mm. and representations of it. Surprise, surprise in reality TV. Um, But to take that from reality TV and talk about it in literature, I would be really interested in um, sort of thinking about toxic femininity in like middle-class white women. Um, and I think there are a lot of interesting novels. Like you could start with something like Stepford Wives, which is satirical, right? But mm-hmm. kind of like that extreme version of it um, to then trace it. But more contemporary novels that I've read recently are Little Fires Everywhere. Um, yeah be really interesting but also such a fun age which I love so much and I absolutely would want to teach and and those are just a couple but those questions of like how do we interrogate what toxic femininity is how it's ingrained um how it puts these sort of societal expectations on like girls, adolescents, um, but also, again, like all those sort of identities, like mother within the domestic sphere, outside of the domestic sphere, movements, like how toxic femininity is, has moved from like, you know, the Stepford wife, like in the home to like workspaces. And I'd have to think about like what kind of text would work beyond home spaces because I think that's what I've thought about the most but I think about it with such a fun age with like babysitters and the relationship between a babysitter and the mother and I don't have anything smart to say I just think that these would be interesting things to flesh out more and consider closely yeah no you really have me thinking now um Wow, my dream course is not as exciting. (laughs) I needed something. I needed something to cleanse me from this episode. So, oh well, um, I'm gonna bring you right back into the muck (laughs) with me. I'm thinking true crime because of what you were saying. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'd be really interested in true crime inspired fiction, maybe the nonfiction itself. I'm really curious in terms of exploitation. What's the line in mining the world for um, issues that matter and, and, and what sort of questions we are grappling with as a community, but then also exploiting actual trauma for your own benefit? What are the lines in using real people and, and depicting them as characters, fictionalized characters? Mm-hmm. Um, taking away that story from them. 
but also what are the ethics in core training we were talking about violence crime trauma as entertainment how do you make that where it's not just watching gladiators fight to the death with that realizing that you're telling someone else's story that that is no longer like cannot be here to refute it and so i guess i'm thinking a lot about like what happens in like true crime podcast that don't have the resources of you know major news outlets right so where you have like I don't know like 2020 and they're interviewing like the person's mother and you're like okay okay this person has the right to tell yeah their kid's story right um but then on in in other like smaller platforms you have well this is someone who lived in that town and maybe knew that person by like seven degrees of separation Mm -hmm. and I'm gonna give them platform to talk about that person's story um and so like this ethics of like who gets to tell what stories and how do we interrogate that I think and I think you do interesting stuff with like Joyce Carol Oates so many of her novels (laughs) you could do stuff even with like um Margaret Atwood and Alias Grace yes um there's a lot of ways you can approach it and think it through that like what happens when you give voice to something but it's never going to be the original voice you're always projecting a voice on it and we can talk about reclaiming voices and reclaiming agency but what does that really mean in these scenarios and and I'm not saying oh I would be saying all true crime inspired fiction is bad I just would want to interrogate like how we talk about violence as a culture especially as we are at it feels like at the peak of the true crime obsession like what is this obsession and and how do we read against the grain a little bit on it and how do we consume it right like mm-hmm. and I think because this could also be a really interesting like class on adaptation starting with like you know tabloids social media lifetime remakes of like the actual true crime event right like these mm-hmm. like levels of retelling the story to the point of it becoming hyper fictionalized I think um and our consumption of each version of those right you can even go back to like the JonBenet Ramsey story right where we're still getting text about that particular event and and we have these whole like you know internet sleuths that are sure that her brother murdered her and this is a real person and we consume that like it's not a real person and a real family and yeah yeah and so I think that would be a lot of like thinking about author's role thinking about audience role thinking about larger societal roles and I don't know how to contain that in a semester but you know yeah it would be multiple classes like multiple classes Yeah. (laughs) yeah okay Margaret welcome back to the semester page I know okay